So first this morning, why the gospel? Um, God is a God of love. Christianity has the most beautiful message in the world that this God of love wants us to know him and to rest in him, to enjoy him, to depend on him forever, that he made us for himself to be, that we're not random, we're not anonymous, we're not coincidences, that we have a God who created us and who wants us and who wants to know us and who wants to give us all that he can give us of himself, to fill us with himself forever and that our our existence would be one of, of love and dependence and infinite joy that we can only taste pieces of on this earth right now. That he loves us so much that he has pursued us from the beginning and that he came to this earth in the person of his son after many other ways that he pursued us and prepared us for this son and then brought the most precious thing to his heart, his son, to us and laid that son on a cross and poured out that son's blood so that all who turned to him for mercy would be reconciled forever to the one who made them for himself. The Christian message is truly the most beautiful message in the world. I, I like to say sometimes, I put it on Facebook, you couldn't invent a God more beautiful and worthy than the Christian God. Like, it, it, what more could you say about God, that, that he would give the most precious thing in him to us and lay his very life down for us and bear our punishment on the cross. You, you can't, whatever you want to do in the marketplace of religions, you know, even if, it, whatever you want to think about Christianity, invent your own. You can't do better than this God who gives everything for us. And so it is truly the best message in the world, the most glorious. Even if you don't believe it, you have to say, well, you can't really do more than laying everything down for the person you love. So, you know, I, I, I can only invent another one just like that. If I want to beat that, I can't. It's the most beautiful message, the most glorious message in the world. But before we can value that message, there is another message. And if it were not for the beauty of the gospel, it, that message, the, the before gospel message, the pre-gospel message would be unbearable. And this message which precedes the gospel and necessitates the gospel is deeply offensive to the world. And it is increasingly going to be offensive to the world if we continue in our present trajectory. And it is a message that is often ignored or downplayed or rejected even by people and churches that profess, whether true or not, profess Jesus Christ. Because it is not a happy message. It is not a message that makes us comfortable. It's a message people have been hated for proclaiming, including Jesus. It's a truth that has cost many believers their lives and even more persecution. But no matter what we might want to do with the truth of this message, it is the clear testimony of Christ and his apostles. And if this message is not true, the cross of Christ is meaningless and foolish and the Savior's blood was shed in vain. And that message, this message I'm talking about, is that all people everywhere 
apart from Jesus Christ, are under the just condemnation for their sin and apart from Christ are going to receive just condemnation for their sin, which will result in eternal destruction for them apart from his saving grace. That is the message. And at the very foundation of why we should want people to find salvation at Christ is this truth. They need salvation in Christ. They need it. It's not a nice way to live for those who choose options among options. All people, the testimony of scripture in Christ and his apostles is that all people everywhere are under the just condemnation and wrath of God and are destined for eternal destruction apart from his saving grace. And this morning, I, I want to address three aspects of this truth. The, the fact of God's wrath or condemnation, the reason for God's condemnation, and the consequences of God's condemnation. The fact of it, the reason for it, and the consequences of it. The first is the fact of it. This is just unpacking what I've just said, this sobering truth. This is really true. Does the Bible really teach that, that all apart from Christ are under the wrath of God. And I want to look at a couple of passages to help us see that. This is not my word. I wouldn't, I hope by God's grace, I, I wouldn't want to preach this or make this up or embellish this. It, it, it's, not, um, it's not my words this morning. These are the words of Christ and his apostles. So we're going to start with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 tells us the state of every person before they are saved through Christ. And here's where Paul um, goes with that truth. He says to the believers in Ephesus, you were dead. This is starting in verse one. You were dead in the trespasses, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says very unflinchingly, startling things about the reality of man's predicament without Christ. He says we were dead. Obviously, he doesn't mean not existing. He doesn't mean on a gurney. He means spiritually cut off from God. Whatever a person thinks apart from Christ about God, if they don't know God through Christ, there is no relationship there. There is no peace there between them and God. There is enmity. There is a lack of peace. There is no hope for that person apart from God. And God says, they are dead to me and I am dead to them. There's no connection. The world is not full. We, we are not all brothers and sisters. We are in the sense that we're all humans, but we're not in the sense that we all belong to God together. Paul says we were dead in our sin, the realm of our death was sin. Sinning was our home. 
Sinning is the cause of our death and the expression of our death. So we're dead in our sins. And and our ruler in this life, Paul says, apart from Christ, is not God, but the greatest spiritual force of godlessness that there is among created beings in the universe. It is Satan. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience is just another way of saying mankind without Christ. Satan is called a prince here because he is, so to speak, royalty in the kingdom of darkness. He is the lead force. He directs and commands and leads and moves the world that rejects God. And he's called the power of the air because, well, as best I can understand it, uh, from what I've read, air is a way of defining our existence, where we live. We live between space and land. We live in this sphere of air. It's all around us. It's where we breathe. Between heaven and earth is air. We live, as Paul to speak, with Satan ruling all around us. It's, it's his territory. It's his domain. 1 John 5 says that the whole world, apart from God's people, is under the control of the evil one. When Satan came to tempt Jesus in the desert, he said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth for they've all been given to me and I can give them to you. Now, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And yet to the world that does not know Christ, he wields power and control. When we think of Satan and his forces, we think of, what we might see in movies we've seen, you know, possession and cults and Ouija boards. And and I'm not saying those aren't scary or can be real things, but Paul says that Satan's chief expression is to facilitate our rebellion against God. In other words, to facilitate our sin. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Like the Holy Spirit is in God's people to produce the fruit of the Spirit, Satan is in the people that God doesn't know to produce disobedience, to produce rebellion against God. So Satan is, is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So all the stuff that we see that's so difficult in our lives, in our homes, in our cities, and in the nations of the world, between the nations of the world, from the fit of rage that parents unload on their kids uh, to the way that um, governments oppress uh, certain social classes to the way that nations rage against nations and uh, decide to take what's not theirs and It's all motivated and run by and pushed by and worked in us by, Paul says, the enemy of our soul, Satan, working through our sin. And then he says perhaps the hardest thing about us with regard to God before we know Christ. He says we were, this is before we met Christ, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, like 
everybody else, in other words, who doesn't know Christ. All sin and satanic rule is in keeping with this terrible truth that our natural state without Christ is not children of God or good-hearted human. It is child of wrath. That is one deserving just condemnation from God. And again, that devastating phrase, like the rest of mankind. Can it really be this bad? When I think about these realities, I'm, I can get overwhelmed. There is passages in scripture um, where people like Isaiah or Daniel will experience an opening of their spiritual eyes to God's realities, whether it's the holiness of God in Isaiah 6 or Daniel when he sees what is going to happen to the world due to God's judgment on the world. There's, there's this picture of people fainting and, and just not being able to stand up anymore falling down, exhausted, sick. And that's, I'm not going to tell you guys I've gotten sick over the last few days, but, but it, it, I can taste like the sense of why that would be if, if we were really to understand and really believe what scripture says about the condition and the state of people apart from Christ. Like your neighbor, who might be an unbeliever, but is always polite to you and hardworking at their job, are they really destined for God's, are they under his wrath right now and destined for eternal destruction? Your coworkers who reject Christ, but they donate to charity, they serve their country, they'd make a meal at work for someone sick. Maybe they serve in the military. Nominal churchgoers who, who they come to church, but deep down they don't buy into all this Jesus business. But they pay their taxes, they love their kids. Hetero and LGBTQ acquaintances who want nothing to do with Jesus but they seem to care more about racism and poverty and God's creation than you, and they indeed might. Can they really be in this much trouble, objects of God's wrath? And why not us too, with all of our sin and all of our daily not measuring up to what we know apart from what we don't know, given how poor our lives can be, why not us? So point two is the reason, the reason for God's wrath. Why this? terrible predicament. Part of our problem, and this is what I'm on to point two of three, the reason for God's wrath, the reason for God's wrath. Part of our problem in understanding this dilemma is that when we consider like issues of justice and right and wrong, I'm not, I don't necessarily mean social justice, I mean just all justice, whether it's, whether it's big picture justice between uh, races or between ethnicities and, and work classes, or it's just justice in your house between your your family mates. Part of our problem is that we, we, we look at it horizontally. It, it's just very easy for us to discount when we think about justice and fairness and what's due. It's very easy for us to discount. In fact, it's really our default mode to discount the most important person in the calculation of justice. And, and Romans 1 regarding this is a passage of crucial importance. 
I almost think of Romans 1 as, and I'm overstepping, so this is a little bit hyperbolic, but I feel like it's almost like the key, the hermeneutical key to understand the whole scriptures, the whole Bible, the whole plan of salvation, because it does such an amazing job of clarifying the problem. Like, what's the real problem at the crux of this, this, this really hard to take truth that we're grappling with today? And Romans 1 tells us, and here's what it says, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his divine His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God is saying here, I'm not buying it about we don't know how we got here. I I don't mean to put it that glib, but that's what he's saying. Evolution or a, a, another ray, alien pl- putting genetics in the sea of, you know, there's spanpermia, it's called, where scientists realized how bad evolution is as explaining the origin of life. So now there's something called spanpermia, which, which means that, that other beings outside of our world have come and deposited life because how else could the mechanism be in place to create life? They just don't understand it. God is saying, I'm not buying that, that you don't, you don't know. I'm not buying that... that Stephen Hawking, you know, the brilliant physicist, came up with a theory that something could come from nothing. And, you know, uh, John Lennox, this brilliant um, Oxford professor, said, Stephen Haw- essentially, he said, Stephen Hawking proved that even the most brilliant men can say the stupidest things. And I don't mean to be glib about it. He, Stephen Hawking was an absolute genius, but his point is like, we're not buying it. Like God says, you know that nothing comes from nothing. You know it. I've put it in your bones. And just to speak of science, the whole art of, the whole point of science is why? Science is just the study of cause and effect. Cause and effect. Why things are is another way of saying cause and effect. And the, the scandal of the scientific community and the scandal of, of all of us really is that we, we've all bought into this idea that well, at the very end of the, of the cause and effect chain, we, we don't have to worry about anything causing it. And God, God is saying in Romans 1, I'm not buying it. You know you're created. You look at this world and you know deep in your heart that there's a creator who's glorious and powerful. Every moment you are sustained and held You are creature and I am creator. And deep down, God says, mankind knows this. And so he says they are without excuse because they try to push the truth of the creator away. For although they knew God, he says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. As I've meditated on this in preparing for this message, I have felt this awakening in me. Just a little bit of just the realization of the fear of the Lord and the fact that I am created. Like, I am a creature. I mean, I don't know, me and Marie talk about this, I don't know the first thing about how this invisible spirit that thinks and feels and wants and desires lives in this fleshly tent. Like, how does this happen? It's a miracle. Every moment is a miracle. And God is saying, you suppress that. You ignore that, but it is true. It's a miracle. How do I just think our move and it just moves? Why do I say that's not a miracle? But if I was able to sit here and make that mic fall off its stand with a thought, that's a miracle. What's the difference? I have an invisible thought. I have an invisible impulse that I just will volitionally, invisibly, and my arm moves. That's proof of creator. That's proof of God. That's holy business. That's a miracle. That should make me stand, let me bow down on my feet and just worship. Oh my goodness, I'm alive. I exist. Holy are you that can do this, that can give me the authority over this boundary. I mean, you have authority over the storms and the winds and the seas, but you've given me a, a taste of that in my image-bearing nature. I have authority over this body. I can do it. I can do it. This is crazy. It's a miracle. Every moment is a miracle. I think it was Einstein who said, either nothing is a miracle or everything's a miracle. The second one is right. Everything's a miracle. But, but I want you to think about something else in this passage, okay? What's so unique about this passage when we think about our predicament is, is that God is telling us why he's angry at the world. He's telling us what the problem is of all, the, the mother of all problems. And there's not one mention of anyone doing anything wrong to anyone else. He's telling us why condemnation and wrath are falling upon the world. And there's not one mention of any human being sinning against any other human being. God's wrath is upon every person because of how they treat him, how they dishonor him and hide the truth about him and how they fail to glorify him with their lives, how they despise the creator instead of giving their hearts to him. Our biggest problem is what we do with him. Paul says the same thing in chapter three. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Because of racism, because of corporate greed, because of Trump idolatry, because of, you know, name it. No, he doesn't say any of that on the left or the right, however we'd want to pick our battles. He says, no one seeks for God. No one is righteous because no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what is God's definition of unrighteousness in people? What is the reason upon which one would become worthless in his sight? Because they do not seek for God. They do not treat him right. They despise the most important person. The one worthy of all our trust and all our worship who deserves it. And instead, Romans 1 as it goes on, we won't unpack the rest of it right now. Instead, they embrace the created things. They embrace the things, they embrace the things he's made. We, we trash him and hide him in our hearts and we glory in his stuff. In other words, and forgive me for using and reusing an illustration I've used before. It's very crude. It's very small, but it might help to give you a taste if you, if you might remember it, if you might not. We might think about a, a young man who by all appearances is kind and generous to his friends. Maybe he's 18 years old. But he despises his father and mother who love him. Kids, this is not about you. <laughs> okay, don't feel, this is not a guilt trip for my kids. I just want to say that or any other kids. This is, a, this is a metaphor. This would be more about me and my heavenly father. But each day, he eats their food. He wears their clothes. He sleeps in their bed, in their house. Their heating, their AC. He uses all of their hard-earned property, their stove, their fridge, their computers, their cars. When the winter comes, he has a warm bed. When it's very hot outside, he has a cool, cool room to, 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 to be in. He's able to get to school and learn because they make that happen. He's able to get all the medical protection he needs because they make that happen. He spends whatever he wants and he never, it's always on their credit card. He expects them to pay the bill each month and they do. But all the while, he wants nothing to do with them. He despises their existence. He refuses their appeals for relationship. He ignores their calls and their entreaties. He de definitely denies obedience. He defiantly denies obedience to their reasonable requests. And let's also say that he wastes and abuses what they give him, much of it, he wastes and abuses it in front of their face on a regular basis. Now let's include the idea that he, he dismisses them among his friends and tells them that all the blessings from them actually belong to him by rights, or by implicit the way he lives without honoring them. And let's say that this is all a reflection of what is really deep hidden in his heart, that he just doesn't want them. He just doesn't want them. He doesn't want them to be his parents. He doesn't want them to be over him. Though he owes them all he is and all he has deep in his heart, he simply wants their things. Wouldn't you think, what a horribly selfish person. On the tiniest, minuscule scale, this parallels something of what God is saying in Romans 1 about what we've done with him. We might feel we're a moral person because we treat everyone well, but if we deny God the honor and love and respect he deserves, well, we've committed 
a, a horrible sin against the person who matters most. We've despised as a race of people, the perfect, loving, holy one who gives us all things, sustains us in all things, every moment of our existence, the only one who has the right to tell us what our existence is for. The Bible says that's our problem. That's our greatest problem. And that problem leads to all other problems. Our problems with sexual morality, jealousy, hatred, violence, anger, exploitation, oppression, racism, cruelty, sex trafficking, pollution, corporate greed, hostile governments. These problems don't start with the way we treat one another. They're consequences that come from how we've treated our creator and what he's handed us over to when we say no to him. What's left if we say no to goodness? And you and I will never understand the Bible or the world or our own heart. We'll be people who pick the nice things and the things that we're comfortable with. But, but we won't be able to take the Bible as the Bible. We won't be able to let God be God as he is God, as he portrays himself in scripture. We'll have to just pick and choose the things we like about him cafeteria style. We won't be able to understand it unless we see that this is the core of our problem, that God's wrath is against humanity first and foremost for what we've done to him. This is the real problem of your unbelieving neighbor. And it is your real problem that only by God's grace in Christ has been solved. This is the real problem with your coworker. It's not their same-sex marriage. It's not their racist attitude. Those are the consequences of a much worse tragedy and problem. They have rejected God and are under his judgment for that. But this is not the worst of it, sadly. Hebrews 9:27 tells us, "It is appointed unto man to die once and then to face judgment." God tells us that without the gospel, without Christ, our lives of rejecting God and indulging our own desires, sinful desires, they bring us to an end, a conclusion. And that conclusion is a meeting with God. When our time in this tent is over and our spirits are separated from our bodies, our spirits, our souls go to meet with the invisible God. And at that place of judgment, every person's rejection of God will be on full display. And so will all the secret sins of harshness and envy and adultery and hatred and selfishness and laziness that that sprout from that rejection. And every person without Christ will be judged, not unfairly, not without justice, but according to justice, according to what they have done in word, thought, and deed. And every person, the scripture's testimony is that every person without Christ will prove themselves to be worthy of condemnation and consigned to what the Apostle Paul calls eternal destruction. Jesus spoke about eternal destruction more than anyone else and by some, in the scriptures, and by some accounts, he spoke about it more and more vividly than he spoke about eternal 
life or heaven. It was on his heart so much because it's real and he wants people not to be there. He described it as a real realm of existence of just and fair measured punishment, but he also described it as painful and grieving. And by my reading of scripture, everlasting. Jesus said in Luke 16, 23, it's a place of torment. He said in Matthew 25, 46, it's a place of eternal judgment. He said in Mark 9, 48, it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He said in Matthew 13, 42, that it's a place where people gnash their teeth in anguish. He called it a place where people grieve with deep regret. It is a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25, 30. Luke 5, in Luke 16, 26, Jesus explains that there's no exit door to eternal destruction. Once you get there, you can never get away from it. It's, it's over. This is our time to choose Christ. You can't come back and warn loved ones. In Revelation 14, we hear the worst words maybe in the whole Bible to me. It says, considering those who in the, in the end times idea of revelation, however you might interpret revelation, these are the people who worship the, the, the satanic figure called the beast, the antichrist, and they worship him and they bear his image instead of God's image. And it says in, in Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. I mean, this is God's holy word and I just want to say that's awful. Like that's awful. I don't understand that. But it's, I understand enough to say that is awful. That is horrible. Now, these images are mysterious. There's a lot we don't understand. I think sometimes when God's talking about end things, eschatological things, heaven and hell things, he's trying to explain a cube to a person who lives only in two dimensions. You know, like we live in a, in where there, we can see squares, but God, you know, it's like if you, if you try to tell a cartoon, a 2D cartoon, what it was like to be three-dimensional, I just think there are, there are ways that when we get there, we're gonna say, okay, this makes sense doesn't mean it's going to be good and we're going to be glad. We're going to say, we, this makes sense. C.S. Lewis, for instance, you know, C.S. Lewis speculated that the idea of eternal fire combined with the idea of eternal destruction communicates a, a never-ending kind of destruction. So there is a destruction that diminishes the human person into unending degrees of less and less human. He talked about how a, a log that's wooden, when you destroy that log, it never ceases to exist. It goes from log to fume to charcoal. It, it, it becomes less and less the log that it once was, but it just goes through undiminishing, or, or it goes through unending degrees of diminishing of what it was once. I, I can't say I like that, but that helps me. Because I just can't fathom and understand these things. I struggle to be able to affirm them and say that makes sense, that, that seems right to me. But these are the words of Christ. And I, who would I be to say, oh, don't you tell me about eternity. Let me tell you what it's going to be. 
I cannot fathom the nature of hell or eternal destruction beyond the words of scripture. So I will just say that whatever they mean, they point to something real and awful and forever and we need to take them seriously. Maybe comfortable or helpful for you, a, a few qualifiers about eternal destruction. It's fair. God is adamant that it is fair. For instance, it is not the same for everyone. Jesus speaks in Luke 47 to 48 these words. He says, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. (laughs) I mean, he's not, he's talking metaphorically here about servants and masters and beatings, but his point is that those who knew God's will are responsible more than those who don't know God's will, even if they don't do it. You know, there's speculation here. Why was Paul forbidden from witnessing in certain localities? Was it possibly God's mercy in seeing that these people are gonna full on reject you? I don't even want you making it even worse for them on the day of judgment. I don't even want you going. I don't know. But it calls into mind that God sees what would have happened in, uh, uh, where we didn't. I, there's a clear example of this. It's one of my favorite, if I could use that word, in talking about something so awful. But one of my, the most helpful ones for you is in Matthew 11, when Jesus is castigating the cities that reject him. And he says this extremely insightful, and I find it comforting, thing. He says, you, Capernaum, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. He says this, listen to this. If the miracles had occurred, meaning my miracles, the things I've done, had occurred in Sodom, which have occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. That is shocking. So he says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is both sobering and comforting because we have a lot of light. We have a lot of Bibles in our homes. But Jesus is saying that he knows that Sodom would have turned to him if he had come in their time. That's why it would have remained. We aren't told all this means, but we can assure ourselves that God will take every possible consideration into consideration and be perfectly just. But those words aren't given to us to cause us to be like, oh, good, everything's fine. Because well, we just look at John 3. The state of everyone who doesn't know Christ, who's not regenerate through the gospel. What does Jesus say about them? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, one can, he cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we're left with this truth, hard truth. Our rejection of God as a race of people, humankind, is worthy of severe punishment because of his infinite worth. Apart from Christ, everyone is on a collision course with the day of judgment for their sins. All the people you see in traffic, at work, in your neighborhood, in your schools, in your home, who is not truly born again and a follower of Jesus is under God's condemnation for their sins against the one true God. But if you understand these truths this morning, it will make sense of everything in scripture. 
It will make sense of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. It will make sense of why he was always talking about that day to come. Why he was always concerned, not so much for what was happening right now, but what, and always asking his people to be concerned about that day to come. It will make sense of why he pleaded for people not to forfeit their soul, even if they could gain the whole world. It will make sense that though he knew all along he was gonna die a horrible death on a cross from the very beginning of his ministry, he ran to that end without flinching, without giving up. Save while we wanna honor that moment in Gethsemane where he certainly did reveal the torment in his heart about that. He pushed through and that's why, because he wanted to save us from this. It explains why he asked God to take the cup from him. Because the cup, it was awful. And yet it explains why he willingly took the cup. Because he didn't want that for you or I. Because he wants to save all people from this eternal punishment. And restore them to everlasting life with the Father. It makes sense of Paul, why he leaves behind all of his religious glamour and, and goes into beatings and shipwrecks and persecutions and sleepless nights and hunger and cold, proclaiming Christ from synagogue to public square, enduring countless rejection and even slander from his own people, the churches he birthed, because he wanted to save people from this eternal destruction and restore them to everlasting life with God. It explains why the New Testament again and again appeals to you and I not to give up on Jesus, but to pay attention even more to him and his salvation and to not let sin deceive us and make us cold and fall away, to keep ourselves close to God's word and daily prayer. And it explains why in the New Testament, this life, as important and meaningful it is, is often made to look comparatively inconsequential relative to the life to come. Why suffering now, though painful, is pointed to, is continually pointed to as worth enduring for the reward that's coming in Christ. And to close, it explains why we're called to be concerned and ready to share about Jesus. Why we're called to be willing to speak and sacrifice out of love and hope for the world that needs him. And this is the passage we're gonna look at. I'm gonna wind it down with this. Just a tiny bit of 1 Peter 2.15. There Peter says to all of us, whether you're working for FCA or you work at Chick-fil-A, or wherever you are. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we're going to unpack that more next week. But I want to focus on just this part. Always be prepared to give an answer. Peter is commanding us all to be ready to explain the best we can who Jesus is. Who he is, what he's done, and what that's meant for us. We are not all called to street evangelism, I don't believe. That, that, will, 
that can be wonderful for those who are called to it and through whom God works. For many of us, that will not be effective for everyone. We do not all have the gift of evangelism that we see in other people. We're, we're all called to be prepared to explain the gospel hope we have in the circumstances in which God allows us. And I want to talk about next week how we can, I think, unbiblically guilt one another and make it seem like everyone's got to be doing evangelism the same way with the same heft. But I also want to make clear what, what is biblical to say. This is, all, this is what is all of our responsibilities. I want to try to make that distinction. But what is clear is that we're all called to be prepared. We're all called to be ready. And so I want, what I want to ask you to do this week is take some time, just maybe 30 minutes if you can. If you can't take 30, take the time you can and just ask yourself, sit down and ask yourself, do I know how to tell someone? Do I know how to give someone an answer for the hope that I have? Like, do I know how to explain what the gospel is? And can I say a word or two about what it's really meant to me? what it's done in my life. Because we're commanded to. And, and if you need to, I, I've talked about these before to you guys. I have a packet of these tracks. And I, I think they're, they're mature, wisely, accessibly done tracks that are big enough to be substantive and small enough to be easy to put in your pocket and carry around with you. And I would just say, perhaps take one of these tracks and use it as a metric because I think it's a fair gospel proclamation. You don't have to say the gospel just like this, but I think it's a, it's a fair one in the sense that it gets the basic elements of turning to Christ for forgiveness and in faith and repentance, putting your hope in Christ and seeking to follow him. I think it puts it in the right balance, the right ways. But this will help you to figure out whether you are prepared to speak the truth about Jesus because it, it is to, I think, a large degree a, a good rendition among many of the truth about Jesus in a gospel form, in a tract form. So, but to close out our time today, having looked at such sobering truths, I just want to run with you to his body and blood. <laughs> 